an article this week about the Netflix CEO. His name is Reed Hastings. The article was about the family first values in the company. The article says this. The CEO said that even though he was projecting those values, that is the family first values, he would stay at work at night if an employee had an issue. He ended up ignoring his family. But that changed eventually. Hastings said the marriage counsellor he went to with his wife of 29 years helped him see that he was a systematic liar. That are his words. You see, for Reed Hastings, it was only when he faced up to his problems with radical honesty that he could begin to change. Now, for you and me, we also need to come to terms with how we are living apart from what we claim to believe. For Reed Hastings, it was only through this radical honesty that he could be set free from a life which was ignoring his family, ignoring his responsibilities at home, ignoring the things that actually are most important in life, the values, in fact, that he had with his head but didn't act on with his heart. And our text today shows us that Jesus sees us truly as we are, with radical honesty. Notice that Reed Hastings said that he was a systematic liar. I wonder if you would be so bold as to be honest about yourself before God this morning. But Jesus knows what we're like. Jesus knows the world that we live in. And he knows that, as our text said, that we are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But we also know that the same Jesus who sees us in our condition has compassion upon us. He loves us. That's why he came to us, that God became a man, because he knows the peril of our condition. He knows that if we live a life apart from him, ignoring him, or even believing the right things in our head, but not leaving them out in our heart, then our life will continue down its self-destructive patterns forever. The unique thing about Jesus is that he sees us in our present condition with compassion, but he has too much compassion for us, too much empathy for us in our situation to leave us there. And so we'll cover these two points today with a bit of radical honesty that Reed Hastings invites us to. My hope is that you may be set free. So firstly, Jesus has compassion for us in our present condition. Uh, In verse 35, which I'm going to turn to in my Bible, because in John chapter 6. Let me get there. Here we go. In verse 35, Jesus goes about all the cities and villages. And what is he doing? He's teaching in the synagogues. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he's healing every disease and affliction. Is going about to the people. Now this is really interesting because almost every religion that we know of, we must do the work to get to God. Almost every religion that we know of, we must do the work to get to enlightenment. 
or to a higher sense of understanding. Even in our secular world, if you want to make it, you have to work very hard. Nothing comes for free. And so you need to work very, very hard if you want to make it in this life. But Jesus, on the other hand, is the God that did the work to get us. That is totally different to our normal human experience. That is totally different to the religious experience. Perhaps even if you call yourself a Christian, you might think that you need to maintain a good life so that God will accept you on that final day. And the gospel tells us, no, Jesus did the work so that he would get us. It is out of love and compassion that Jesus went to all the cities and villages. He came to the people. God became a man and dwelt among us. The second thing this tells us is that also unlike every other religion, when the God or the gods or the people higher up in society are removed from the sufferings of this world, our God, Jesus Christ, came to us in the midst of the sufferings of this world. He lived among us. He was born as a human being. He had a family. He had friends. He had a job. He worked. This is the God the Bible tells us about who comes to be one of us, to meet us in our need, and to suffer just like we do in order to save us. This Jesus that the Bible talks about is very different, in fact, unique amongst all the religions and belief systems in the world. So Jesus comes to us. And that's how we know that he has compassion for us in our present condition. The second thing that we see is that Jesus sees our condition without merit. Let me explain. So in these verses, we get a bit of a summary of Jesus' ministry so far. Jesus went around in all the villages and the cities, teaching in the synagogues. He had a teaching ministry, had a proclamation ministry. He was telling people about how to come into the kingdom of God to become one of God's people and placing his hand upon people and healing them. I've already heard much about that over the past few weeks. But notice something. That he put his hand upon people and healed them. He spoke about eternal life to people. Not because they did anything good to deserve it. But rather because he loved them and saw the condition that they were in. In verse 36, Jesus saw the crowds. And he saw the condition that they were in. Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion upon them. He knows what life is like. Because he lived amongst us, but he knows the hard things as well. And yet still he stretches out his hand to heal. We live in a world where you don't get good things unless you earn them, unless you deserve them. And yet Jesus is the God who steps into our world and stretches out his hand to heal, speaks the words of life because he knows that we don't deserve them and he loves us anyway. This is not typical religion. This is Jesus and the good news about him. Let me share an illustration for you. 
Imagine there's someone drowning in a lake. It's cold water. They've jumped into the lake and they've just been overcome with shock and they're trying to swim, but they're falling beneath the waves. Two people assess this situation. The first person looks at the person drowning and goes, well, before I save them, let me just think about this person for a minute. Are they a good person? If I save them, will they live a good life? Will they be better for humanity? Will they be better for society if I go out and save them? Do they have a good track record? Because if they don't, maybe I shouldn't save them. If I save this person, will they repay me? Will they give me a great gift in response? And of course, this whole time, the person is gulping for the last gasps of air. The second person, however, sees this other person drowning in the lake and dives in. They think, oh, someone's drowning. And they dive in to the water. No worry about themselves. And they, run, they go in and rescue that person. They don't consider whether they're good or bad. They don't consider whether they do a good job in society once they're out and saved. They don't have strings attached. And they do not wait to save this person from a sure and certain fate of drowning. You see, Jesus is not the distant God who deliberates and considers whether we are worthy of his salvation. Jesus is the God who dives into humanity, who knows our condition and swims amongst us. He goes further and to give his life to save ours. Jesus shows us that God is not distant and calculating, but near and personal. Jesus doesn't teach, proclaim or heal because we deserve it, because we are worthy of it, but because he knows the nature of our lives and he knows that we really need him. The only difference is that in reality, many of us don't know that we're really doing That's the second point. Jesus sees our condition without merit. Thirdly, Jesus sees our nature. Jesus sees our nature. Interesting in verse 36 that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, Jesus is speaking, of course, as a shepherd. One of these metaphors that we continue to see throughout the Bible is that Jesus comes to his people as a shepherd to take care of his sheep. We see this time and time again, this beautiful picture of a caring shepherd who protects his sheep and the lambs, who defends them against outsiders and enemies, and who would even lay down his life for his sheep, a truly good shepherd. And one of the most famous songs that God's people get to sing about the nature of this good shepherd uh, is from Psalm 23. Psalm 23 tells us how good it is under the care of the Good Shepherd and that God Himself will be the Good Shepherd of His people. But the people that Jesus sees are like sheep without a shepherd. And so Psalm 23 actually works in the reverse for many of us. 
And so I'm going to do, and I've made this term up, I'm going to do a reverse exposition of Psalm 23 so that we can see the condition that we might be in. So verse 1 and 2 tell us in Psalm 23 that there are green pastures and still waters. There is peace, provision and security for those who are under the care of God. But when we don't have Jesus as our shepherd, we are constantly striving. We're constantly working to make it in this world or even in a religious sense. We're constantly serving to make ourselves good enough for God, which, as I've said earlier, is actually not a Christian perspective. We live often with much anxiety and much fretfulness. We wonder for ourselves, we wonder for others, whether life's really worth it. There are no green pastures and still waters. Verse 3 talks about these paths of righteousness. That the Good Shepherd leads us on paths of righteousness for His name's sake. But without Him, we can't set our lives on the right course. We're constantly alternating from family and relationships to love, to career, to social activities. All with the hope that we might find the meaning of life and find that thing that truly satisfies us and we divert from one to the other depending on how we're feeling or the stage of life we're in. There are no paths of righteousness for those without a good shepherd. Thirdly, as this verse descends into the valley of the shadow of death, those who are under the care of the good shepherd do not fear evil, but those who are not do. We will all experience the value of the shadow of life at some point in our life. I have. I'm sure you have. You will. Or perhaps you are right now in a difficult place. And yet without a good shepherd, we have to make it on our own. We don't have the one who will care for us and defend us so that we shall not fear, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The psalm talks about God preparing a table before us and with our enemies at our feet, defeated and overcome. But without the good shepherd, our enemies are not defeated. They trample over us, they devour us, they make us even like them. Because when you are harassed by other people, sometimes you become a harasser too. Sometimes you realise that it's a dog-eat-dog world, so you better become a dog. And so you make a good life by trampling on others too because you've been trampled upon. It's only fair, we say to ourselves. Finally, rather than goodness and mercy, which Psalm 23 says will follow those who have God as their shepherd all the days of their life and that they will be in his presence forever. Instead, evil and judgment follow us like wolves waiting to devour helpless sheep and lambs. Now, the, met the metaphorical language is very strong. And I warned you earlier that we're going to have some radical honesty this morning. So I'm keeping my end of the bargain. But I hope that you too will have a bit of radical honesty with your own life. Have you experienced this? This life without the care of the Good Shepherd? Many people, Christian people too, Though we believe the right things in our head and our heart, we feel like we don't have him caring for us in the valley of the shadow of death. 
Many things that I'm explaining feel very close to us and hurtful. So what does it look like when we've been under this life being harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? What does it look like for God to bring us out of it? Well, let me tell you a story about Jenny and Christina. Jenny went to Sunday school when she was young, but when her parents divorced, she stayed with mum, and mum didn't want to go to church anymore. Jenny had a good childhood, and her mum cared for her. But when Jenny was 16, her mum was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and she was unable to care for Jenny. Jenny became angry and felt lonely. If there was a God, she was convinced that he did not love her because he allowed her to get a condition like this. Eventually, Jenny met Guy, and they fell in love. But when they had a child together, Guy became angry and withdrawn. When their baby, Christina, cried, he yelled at her to be quiet. Guy didn't want the commitment of children, so one day he just got up and left. Jenny felt let down by God, and she now felt let down by Guy. She didn't know where to turn. After a few years and several short-term relationships, Jenny worked hard and decided she didn't need love to get along in life. As long as she loved Christina, that was enough. But as Christina became a teenager, as teenagers often do, she didn't reciprocate the love that Jenny offered. Christina wanted to be with her friends more and more and was convinced that Jenny was too controlling. And to be fair, Jenny was quite controlling. The more Jenny tried to get love and attention from Christina, the more Christina felt controlled. Eventually, Christina rebelled and walked out of home at 16 years old. And as a dagger to the heart, it was the same age that Jenny was when her mum got MS. This left Jenny in a pit of despair. She didn't know how to get out because love had truly failed her even when she gave love. It failed her. A week after, though, Christina returned. Christina walked back into her room, put her bags down and hugged her mum. She told her mum that she loved her and was sorry that she'd left. But that was not all. There was something very different about Christina. She had this strange confidence and security about her. Yet she was open and willing to talk more more than she had been since she was a child. Jenny asked Christina what had happened. And she replied that she had become a Christian. Christina stayed with a friend who happened to go to church and she went along and had believed in Jesus. He loves me, Christina said. He truly loves me. He died and rose again so that I could be saved. I could join this new family and become a new person. Jenny, of course, was sceptical. You can imagine having a teenager away for a week and then come back and they're suddenly a Christian. But Jenny noticed that Christina had this joy that she hadn't had since she was a child. But then Christina said something that almost floored Jenny. Mum, she said, I've experienced that God really loves me and I've realised that I haven't loved you as I should. But God wants you to know that he loves you too and that he sent Jesus to die for you and if you believe in him, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, Jenny was overcome with emotion at this point. 
Because she couldn't understand how her daughter could say something like this to her. She couldn't understand how Christina could tell her what she really feared. Because Jenny really feared that it wouldn't be okay in the end. That after everything was said and done, it wouldn't be okay. But Christina also told her what she'd really hoped. That there was someone out there who would never leave her nor forsake her. That there was someone who would love her enough never to let her down. Because she'd always been let down in life. She'd been let down by her parents' divorce. She'd been let down when her mum got MS. She'd been let down, she thought, by God who allowed it. She was let down by Christina's dad. And by her other partners. And now even Christina. But now it seemed that she didn't really know the God Christina spoke of at all. Jenny was so moved by her daughter's words that she took a mental note that she should look into Christianity for herself. And so how did Jenny experience the harassed and helpless world that Jesus talks about when he saw the crowds, that he had compassion on them? How did she experience life without the Good Shepherd? Ordinary life. Ordinary life and its sufferings that we all go through. That is what Jenny experienced. This story may be very familiar to some of you because you've experienced parts of it. We've all experienced parts of it. And the ordinary sufferings of this world are supposed to tell us that we need a good shepherd who loves people like us and wants to give us life to bring us out of it. Who wants to meet us in our deepest place of need, because you notice that the fears that Jenny had and the hopes that Jenny had was that someone would love her enough never to leave her nor forsake her. That was underneath it all, even though the circumstances of life, and she realised that there was a God who does love her, even if it was just a mental note that she took that maybe she didn't believe in the God that she'd been told about and thought about most of her life. That this true God... It was a good shepherd who would heal her wounds, that would teach her about his wise and loving ways, and would proclaim the kingdom of God to her, that would reveal his compassion to her. And how did Jesus do it? He did it through her daughter, through Christina. Jesus interrupted the cycle of harassment and helplessness that, as you were probably realising, was going to happen to the next generation because it happened to Jenny at 16 and it happened to Christina at 16 as well. And without interruption, that cycle goes on and on, harassed and helpless for one generation after the other. Jesus sees us in our need. He sees our hopelessness and he says, I'm here. And, And if you'll have me, I'll have you. And if you'll have me, I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. And so my question for you is, do you see your own state, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, with the radical honesty that we need to? Do you see it? Often we're not willing to really think about our lives. I've heard it said that truth is truth whether you believe it or not. And the truth is that Jesus knows who we are. He knows what we're like. 
He knows what's coming. He knows what's gone before. And he's willing to step into our lives in love to show us a God who will never leave us nor forsake us and to prove it to us with great power. So that's my first point, that Jesus has compassion for us in our present condition. My second shorter point is that Jesus has too much compassion to leave us in our present condition. Ed Stetzer, who is a Christian theologian, uh, wants to deal with this confusion about the goal of Christianity. And we often hear it from St. Francis of Assisi, who's rumoured to have said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words. You might have heard that before. Ed Stetzer says this in response. It's a good sentiment. And I certainly agree that we need to demonstrate gospel change in our lives by caring for others. But there are two problems with the Assisi quote. Firstly, he never said it. Well, that's a problem, of course. <laughs> Secondly, it's really bad theology. You see, it's, using a statement like that is a, bit, is a bit like saying, feed the hungry at all times, if necessary, use food. For Christians, the gospel is good news. That's what the word literally means. For evangelicals, our name speaks of the commitment to evangelism that defines us. The good news needs to be told. Famous magician and outspoken atheist Penn Gillette once talked on his video blog about an encounter with a Christian who gave him a Bible as a gift. Rather than be offended by it, Gillette recognised the gesture for what it was, concern for him. How much do you have to hate someone not to proselytise, Gillette asked. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Remember, this is an atheist speaking. It's a bit like Jesus, and if he was to say, I know the condition that you're in, and I'm powerful enough to do something about it, of course, because I created the world, and I'm God, and I can speak things into existence through my words, but I'm not going to do anything about your condition. Imagine that. But that's not true at all. The Bible tells us that Jesus has come to us and he gives us a new motivation. You see, our motivation for sharing the hope that we have in Jesus, which is very important, is because we have a Saviour who is radically honest about the human condition. But he's also brave enough and loving enough to save us from the condition that we have at huge cost to himself. This is the compassion that Jesus has when he looks upon the crowds. And he has so much of that compassion, so much of it demonstrated in brave love, that he will not let us stay in that, in that situation, in that condition, if we'll have it. We see this demonstrated in three ways. Firstly, true love leads to action. Jesus demonstrated his shepherding heart by teaching, proclaiming, and healing. And we see this in Matthew chapter 9. But of course, there's 19 more chapters of Matthew's gospel. If you were to flick forward in your Bible, there's a lot more that Jesus does. Let me ask you, why doesn't it just end there? I mean, if Jesus was to meet, just meet our physical needs, then surely Matthew's gospel would just end at that point. Jesus is a good person. He's done a good job. He clearly loves people and cares for them. Is that enough? Of course not. Because, you see, there's a problem still. Teaching, proclaiming, and healing 
just deals with our physical condition. There is an eternal state that all of us have. We have a soul. We need to be saved out of our condition, not merely helped in it. How does Jesus do this? Jesus uses this metaphor of sheep and a shepherd many times. And in John's Gospel, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep. He realises that they're harassed and helpless. And that's not the end. The end comes right in the concluding chapters of Matthew's Gospel when Jesus dies on a cross. As the good shepherd, spilling his blood and giving his body, as we've symbolised today through communion, for the sheep that he loves. For the people he saw who were harassed and helpless. For people like you and me who experienced the sufferings of this world and the difficulty of this world without him. He died. He laid down his life to do it. John's Gospel earlier in chapter 3 paints it in a beautiful way. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. As always in love, that God saw us like the person who witnessed the other person drowning and dived into humanity. And he did something about it. He came to save us from the direction that we're going in. Save us from a sure and certain fate without him. He loves us and he does something about it. This is the God who is not willing, even at the cost of his own life, even to be strung up upon a cross in shame before a sceptical crowd, who would be willing to give his life for you and for me. And notice that Jesus does the work for us. He gives his life to save us from a harassed and helpless state. He rises from the dead, overcoming the world, overcoming sin and death, and giving new life to all who believe. And so we are called to respond. There's this beautiful term for the purest values of these sort of religious people that were around in the 16th and 17th century. They have this term that describes faith in Jesus. They call it leaning on him. Leaning on him. We're called to lean on Jesus. What does it mean to lean on something, on someone? It means to put your trust in them because you can't stand up on your own. When you lean on someone, you let them take the weight. When you lean on Jesus, you let him take the weight of your life. When you lean on Jesus, you give your sin up to him, you give your failures up to him, you give a broken life up to him and you say, Jesus, I need you because I can't do it myself. And so faith, in a beautifully described way, is leaning on Jesus. And invites those who feel harassed and helpless, like you and me this morning, to lean on Him. To lean on Him. So true love leads to action. Secondly, true love leads to transformation. There's a quote by another Puritan guy, I like these guys. Uh, his name's Thomas Brooks. And he says this, speaking of Jesus. He is of use to weak saints to comfort them. He is of use to doubting saints to confirm them. He is of use to dull saints to quicken them. 
And he's of use to falling saints to support them. And he's of use to wandering saints to recover them. And how does he do it? As a good shepherd who goes after his sheep. You see, he doesn't just come to us, see us in our condition and let us go on our own. There's another parable in Luke's Gospel about a good shepherd who when he realises that one is missing and has gone off on its own, he goes out after it. He leaves 99 of 100 sheep behind and goes after the one. That is incredible. What would most shepherds do? They'd be pretty happy with 99 out of 100. They wouldn't leave the 99 behind you know, with, without another shepherd to look after them. But no, our good shepherd steps into the mess, goes out into the danger, and is willing to grab us. And what does he do with the sheep that he finds? He picks it up and puts it on his shoulders. He carries it. The sheep leans on him as he carries it home. And the parable says there's great joy in heaven when that happens. And so the good news for you today, no matter what background you're from, whether you are a religious person or a non-religious person, or most of us are probably somewhere, many of us are somewhere in between, Jesus will come for you personally. He will come for you. And we respond by leaning on him and trusting what he's done for us. Thirdly and finally, true love calls us to earnest prayer for labourers. Verse 37 says this, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest. Now, I had to think about this one for a long time. If you've ever taught the Bible before, sometimes you read something and you go, what's going on here? So I want to answer two questions for you as I finish. Firstly, who are the labourers? Jesus says to pray to the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest, to earnestly send, sorry, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out labourers into his harvest. Who are labourers? Who are they? Well, I think we get the understanding for that earlier in the text. That people who will go like Jesus did. Go to others to share the good news. Jesus went to the cities and the villages. We are to be sent people as Christians. If you believe in Jesus, then wherever your station of life is at, you are to be a sent person to go and to share the hope that you have in him. How did Jesus do it? He taught people. He taught religious people in the synagogues where to share and to speak God's word to one another. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God to others. We are to be people who proclaim that there's good news, that there is a shepherd who will never leave us nor forsake. And we're to be people of healing to others, to make the lives of others better, to step into the mess of other people like Jesus did for us and to help them. But we're also to be people who pray because on our own, we don't often have the will to go if you're like, man, you're saying a lot of stuff and I feel like this seems really hard. Well, that's how it is. On our own, in our own strength, we don't have the will to go to everyone that we know and to share the hope that we have in Jesus. 
We don't have the power to teach, proclaim and heal. And we may not even have the heart of compassion or the empathetic care in love that Jesus has for a world that's harassed and helpless. And so we need to become God's labourers. Jesus is telling his disciples, the people who are supposed to be his labourers, to pray for labourers. What's he saying? Pray so that you might become these people and pray that more will come. And so we do that in three steps. We must pray to receive compassion from Jesus. And the centre of this is expressed in his gracious love for people as they are, but unwilling to leave them as they are, but to give his life to death so that they might have life forever. To the degree that you know that you are harassed and helpless, but loved and sacrificially died for so that you might come into the kingdom of God, to the degree that you know that you have a good shepherd who loves and cares for you and that you are his and he is yours, that is the, to the degree that you will have the compassion of Jesus for other people. That's the first step. The second step is that when we get his compassion, we get the will to go to others and to share it with them. But that is what motivated the Father to send the Son. It was love. And so when we get the love of Jesus for us, we get the will to share in love the hope that we have with others. That's the second step. The third step is this, that we can access the power to teach, proclaim, and to heal when we know and experience His teaching, His proclamation, and His healing for ourselves. You can't do something until you've received it. You can't give of what you do not have. And so as we step in, we want to meet Jesus. We want to live for Him. Many of you want to live for Him. You have a great desire to serve Jesus with your whole life. You might have been stirred up to do that right now. To the degree that you know what He's done for you, what it cost Him, and how much you need Him, is the same degree that He will send you out in great power and love to do the same for others. Finally, what is earnest prayer? Again, tricky one. I spent a long time thinking about this one. I had to look through all the other verses that have the Greek word for earnest prayer and the rest of the Bible to work out what this means. And here's six, a sample of six times in the Bible where this word is used to pray earnestly or to beg. The first one is to pray night and day. To pray night and day in 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 1. The second one is continual prayer in Acts 10 verse 2. The third is a prayer of repentance. Earnest. The fourth is to know Jesus as an Ethiopian eunuch, a non-believer but a religious man, came to Philip and said, will you tell me the meaning of the Bible? He wanted to know about Jesus. The fifth is begging Jesus to be healed from leprosy. And the sixth is a desperate father asking Jesus to cast the demon out of his son. You can just imagine. This is the word, this begging, this earnestness, this deep desire that God would move in the world is the kind of prayer that Jesus calls his people to. He wants us to pray with the same heart that he has for people. The same heart that sent him to the cross to die. And again, so I'll say to you the same thing I said before. To the degree that you know what Jesus has done for you, how much it cost him, how much he loves you, and how much he's given up for you, and the beautiful life he welcomes you into is the same degree that you will be able to pray 
for others, for more workers. Quick warning on that one. If you start praying like that, you're probably going to become a worker yourself, a worker that Jesus will commission to send out and to share this hope with others. Well, I'm going to pray now and I'm going to invite the band to come up and...